In this talk, Professor Jeff Hammond, Director of the University of Bath's International Centre for the Environment, discusses the challenges Britain faces in making its energy sector more sustainable. He addresses global challenges, as well as the ways in which local communities can act to reduce their energy use and carbon footprint. Good evening and welcome. It's uh, very nice to see a spread of ages from uh, quite young people to, uh, let's say, uh, or senior citizens. These days I'm nearer to the senior citizens than I am to the young people. I'm Jeff Hammond, um, and I direct a, a cross-university uh, network called the International Centre for the Environment. And uh, one of my other day jobs is that I'm professor in the Department of Mechanical Engineering. And I'm going to uh, try and talk to you today about uh, lowering our carbon footprint. The idea of a footprint is, is really a metaphor. It's, it's a metaphor for treading more softly on the earth, as it were. Um, and uh, as we'll see, uh, something like 95% uh, of the carbon emissions uh, that the UK emits comes from the energy sector if you include transport. So um, that's why I'm, I'm talking about uh, moving towards a, a sustainable energy system. Okay, this is uh, roughly what I'm going to talk about. Uh, some of the slides are probably a bit dense and I may... Uh, skip over some of the material, but I hope I can get over the general message. I'm going to start by talking about uh, energy and environment, and obviously these days that means the uh, uh, challenge of climate change, uh, but we have to balance problems about climate change with other energy issues, and the other energy issues, one of the other energy issues that we have is the fact that our fossil fuel resources, certainly in the North Sea, are reducing at a significant rate, and many people argue that they're going to start depleting um, internationally uh, from now onwards. I'm also going to talk about uh, what we sometimes call the sustainable development paradigm. I think I've just moved this up slightly. The sustainable development paradigm. This is the, the idea that we have to balance uh, uh, economic growth with social concerns and with environmental protection. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about the energy sector, what's driving the energy sector, what is sometimes referred to as the energy hierarchy. That is, this, 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 the, that is to say, if you want to reduce your energy consumption or you want to use uh, low-carbon uh, means of producing that uh, energy, then the thing to do is to start at the top with energy efficiency and then to move to renewable or distributed energy systems, um, then to uh, nuclear power as the final option, not the first option. And finally, I'll talk a little bit about some work we've done on environmental footprinting, which is a way of bringing all these ideas together, um, thinking globally, acting locally, as it were. I should say that, um, although I'm giving this talk, much of the research that goes behind the work that we've done is, uh, is undertaken by a team of researchers, and I've got a list of them uh, at the end. Okay, so let's start with uh, this slide. Um, since the 1850s, we've undergone uh, a succession of different so-called energy transitions. Uh, originally, uh, before the Industrial Revolution, we were almost solely dependent on traditional forms of energy. So that's things like, uh, in, in uh, the UK, that would be things like uh, fuel wood, also hydro in, in the sense of uh, water wheels and the like. Um, when the Industrial Revolution started, that was kicked off by uh, the... Uh, generation of production of coal, and you can see uh, a spike in the production of coal in the post-war period was fueled dominantly by oil, 
started uh, in the Royal Navy that uh, Professor Hawley will know all about. Um, in uh, recent decades, we've grown in terms of our use of gas and uh, more recently in terms of nuclear. One of the questions that we have to address is what's going to happen between now and, say, uh, the middle of this century. And this is one uh, institution's view. This is the view of Shell, the uh, Anglo-Dutch uh, energy uh, conglomerate, and it suggests that uh, we will still have significant proportions of oil, gas, um, some nuclear, uh, but we will increase, uh, they believe, renewables and will particularly increase uh, in biofuels. I'm not actually going to talk about biofuels very much in this lecture, but that's one of the uh, fuels um, that we should keep an eye on as we move into the future. Okay, um, energy and the environment. Obviously, energy sources of various kinds, heat and power, human development. So they're very critical to, to what we do as human beings. And, and so that's the, first, uh, that's the first thing that we do with, with energy sources. But they also have unwanted side effects. And the sort of unwanted side effects that you have from energy systems it, are things like acid rain. Acid rain came particularly from sulfur dioxide emissions from power stations. We've essentially got that problem under control. But another um, second order or side effect is global warming, which is the thing that uh, many people are very concerned about. And, and uh, the, the mechanism that we think controls this is that we emit uh, carbon dioxide and another, a number of other so-called greenhouse gases, things like methane, for example, uh, and they lead to uh, an increase in temperature. I'll show you the next graph indicates the sort of speed of which that's happening and that this will, could lead to quite dramatic change. But what I always try and do with my own students is to um, make the point that there are scientific uncertainties involved in climate change. So science, it's not as uh, uh, fixed as one sometimes feels when you uh, see the TV or, or read the press. But the, the, the evidence is growing that the bulk of the effects is, is to do with uh, the emission of gases like carbon dioxide. Now, as well as having concern for the environment, we need to balance this environmental effects with social and economic um, well-being of uh, our citizens. And so we need to move from where we are, which is dominated, as we saw in that previous slide, by fossil fuels, to a more sustainable energy system. And as I tried to indicate in that previous slide, that doesn't mean to say for most of this century we're going to abandon fossil fuels. There will be fossil fuels around. As we'll see later, for example, there'll be an abundance of coal if we, want, if we choose to use it. The problem with coal is that it produces a lot of carbon dioxide. So we want to shift the emphasis from where we are now to an energy system that is uh, more dependent on uh, renewables, possibly nuclear fuel, and certainly energy efficiency. And this is the, uh, the sort of evidence that we have for global warming. Again, this is about the same time scale as you saw on that uh, previous uh, figure for the energy transition, so starting around about the Industrial Revolution and moving out to projections out to the middle of this century. And the solid line is observed data. This is data obtained from uh, the Met Office and the Hadley Center at uh, Exeter. And I've put on there two uh, projections. Uh, the Hadley Center has very uh, complicated climate change models, uh, which can project what the global average temperature is as we move into the future. Um, but these uh, very complicated models are not perfect. And I like to show this slide to illustrate to my students that they're not perfect, because the 
two projections. The model data as you move into the future are with and without uh, sulfate aerosols, and you can see that uh, that relatively small change in the model makes a difference of something like um, a third in the predicted average temperature. That would make an enormous difference in terms of climate change. But the trend is there. The trend is upwards, and the likelihood is that the main um, reason for that is the emission of carbon dioxide from human activities. Well, what, what is the uh, UK doing? This is some uh, data and projections for uh, carbon dioxide in, in the UK. You have to be a bit careful because there's a false origin on the uh, y-axis. It, it doesn't start at zero. Um, but it does show you the trend generally downwards. There's some fluctuation, and that's because air temperature in, in the winter changes and heating demand will change in the winter. Um, this is what the, 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 the Environment Department would like to happen. It would like CO2 emissions to continue to go downwards. Uh, but the Department of Trade and Industry, as it was, which was responsible for uh, projecting energy use, uh, believes that carbon dioxide emissions are going to go up. Anybody has a guess as to why that is? Okay. Pardon? No, that this is UK. No, it's because we're decommissioning nuclear power stations. And if we don't replace them with something else, that may be a new generation of nuclear power stations, it may be renewable energy sources, if we don't replace them with something which is a very low uh, carbon emitter, our CO2 emissions are going to go up uh, like that. So what do we basically need to do? One of the largest sectors, and one of the ones that we're interested in, is uh, CO2 emissions from electricity generation. And this is a figure which shows a range of different um, power plants from on your left-hand side, very old coal-fired power stations to nuclear, and the same would apply, same data would apply for renewables on this side. Um, and it shows the amount of CO2 emissions uh, emitted per unit of electricity. It's actually in terawatt-hours, but think of it as, as per unit of electricity. So basically what we want to do as far as the uh, electricity generating sector is, is concerned is we must start to move from the left-hand side to the right-hand side. The new generation of combined cycle gas turbines that run on natural gas are roughly half the CO2 emissions per unit of electricity that the old coal-fired power stations. But if you take uh, nuclear and renewables, they're almost zero. They're not exactly zero because when we construct nuclear power stations, uh, we, have to, we usually do that uh, using fossil fuels as part of the construction process. So it's, uh, there is an element of what we call embodied carbon, embodied uh, energy. Okay, now that's the, the, the general background as far as the climate change issue is concerned. But we also have a problem with fossil fuel depletion. And uh, these are some data that I published back in 1998. I like to show this to show people that I can get things wrong. Um, because back in 1998 I said that... Um, the life of, of oil from uh, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, dominated by the Middle East, was something like uh, 20 to 40 years. Now, it's going to be quite a bit longer than that. Um, but the trend is, is correct. That is that we are progressively running out. And if you view the planet as a finite size, with finite resources, there's going to be, come a time at some time in the future when we're going to run out of those resources. We also have a problem with uh, natural gas. Natural gas comes from... Uh, uh, the, mainly from the Russian Federation, as, at least as far as uh, Europe's concerned. And uh, there the lifetime is, is 40 to 70 years. 
In both those locations, you might say that getting energy resources, firstly from the Middle East, and secondly from the Ru Russian Federation, is a rather risky process, because in the case of Russia, in recent years they've threatened or actually shut off gas supplies to uh, Belarus and to Ukraine, and they might do that to, to Western Europe. So that is a worry. We have lots of coal. It's widely distributed. We have lots of coal in the UK. We've just chosen to shut our coal mines down and import cheap coal from places like Poland and Australia. But if we had to, we could uh, reopen those mines. So when you're looking at this fossil fuel issue, it's a question of uh, what is the lifetime, what is the distribution of these resources, how secure are they going to be, and ultimately what the price of those resources are going to be. Um, this is a figure that... Uh, indicates the situation in relation to um, North Sea oil. Uh, we have been almost uh, unique in Europe, certainly in the European Union, in having an abundance of energy resources in the UK over the last two decades. But we're moving into a situation where oil from the North Sea will start to decrease. There's a lot of uncertainty as to uh, how much that will be, how quickly it will run out, but I think there's, there's little doubt that it will run out as we move into the future. And we'll move from a country that was um, very generously endowed in fossil fuels to one that's much less uh, generously endowed. You can see that the, the, the data for the consumption continues to grow, but at a relatively modest rate. So one of the issues that we have to deal with, as well as climate change, is this whole issue of, of what we do about fossil fuel depletion. Wrong one. Okay, let me just uh, digress slightly and say a bit more about what I mean about sustainable development. It's about uh, uh, balancing economic and social development with environmental protection. At the uh, Earth Summit uh, in uh, Johannesburg uh, a few years ago, they used the strap line, People, Planet, Prosperity. Um, British Petroleum like to talk about people, planet, and profits. It's just the way that you look at these things. Um, as that's one definition of sustainable development, one that came from the Brundtland Commission. Incidentally, there's something like 200 different, different definitions of sustainable development, so don't get hooked on any particular one. Um, but the Brundtland Committee uh, said that uh, it was about meeting the needs of the present generation without compromising the needs of future generations to meet their own needs. And so it's about uh, a path, a trajectory, and uh, if you get very enthusiastic about the literature on sustainable development, you'll find that some people use the term sustainable development and sustainability as interchangeable terms. Um, but Jonathan Porritt, um, who chairs the UK Sustainable Development Commission, has tried to make a distinction between these two. He argues that uh, sustainable development is a process or a journey. That's the journey that we're we are making. And the, the destination, what we're trying to get to, is uh, this idea of sustainability. He then goes on to use a particular definition of sustainability, which I don't actually agree with, but I do think it's probably a good idea to distinguish between uh, the process and the destination. Another way of uh, looking at sustainable development is in ter terms of what we sometimes call these three pillars. So at the top there, you've got uh, the environmental domain, ecology and thermodynamics. I've stolen this figure from Roland Cliff from the University of Surrey. I like it because it mentions thermodynamics that, that Professor Hawley and I are quite keen on. Um, on, on the left-hand side, you've got uh, economics and technology, and on the right-hand side, you've got society. And that black 
blob in the middle is supposed to be the area of sustainability. So when we, if you like, get all these requirements in harmony, that's when we have uh, achieved sustainable development or, or sustainability. Okay, let me put that in the context of the energy system. This is a, um, a rather busy graph that I produced a few years ago. And uh, what we have here is that part of the energy sector largely concerned with producing electricity. Uh, we, have some, we have to distribute both the electricity, which is, as well as oil, and gas, and solid fuel. And we have, at this end, a number of end uses. Now, one of the most important things, which is not always understood by the general public, is that if we take the raw materials here and put them into a power station, then that's associated with very large losses. Um, something like 65% uh, of our uh, energy, um, depending on the efficiency of the generators that we're using, can be lost in our electricity generating system. So, in a way, if we want to produce electricity and then just to use it, for example, as, as heating in the domestic sector, that's very inefficient because we have to take account of that 65% or so of energy that we've lost in producing it. Now, the government's policy is to encourage renewables, um, but we're, if, you if you include hydro as part of um, renewables, and hydro mainly comes from Scotland and Wales, large, old uh, um, hydroelectric schemes, We've only 5% only of the, the total energy in the UK comes from this source. Something like 20% of our electricity comes from uh, nuclear fuel and something uh, greater than 30% comes from, from natural gas these days and a slightly smaller amount from uh, coal. We've uh, more or less shut down all our oil-fired power stations now. Okay, this is a slide which indicates what... Uh, the implications of the energy system for you and I. This looks at uh, the end use of energy uh, in the UK. And uh, I hope you can make out that there are, I've identified four sectors there. The domestic sector, that's the homes of which we live in. And you'll see a slight fluctuation and a general gradual trend upwards. And that's because of, uh, again, changes in the climate. If it's a very cold winter, then we use more, more heat for heating. Um, the same sort of thing happens to services. Services include shops, insurance company, also universities. You see a, a similar sort of fluctuation. Uh, if you look at uh, industry, uh, you see uh, a remarkable difference. What you see is a fall in the energy used in industry by about 40% since the oil crisis of the early 70s. And there are a number of reasons for that. One is that uh, industry responded very rapidly to changes in prices. Um, another reason is that industry generally has moved away from oil and coal to using uh, natural gas and electricity. Uh, and finally, um, and perhaps some would say unfortunately, we've moved away from heavy industry, things like uh, Port Talbot Steelworks, to uh, call centers and uh, light engineering, electronics, and that sort of thing. The last time I said that, somebody pointed out that most of that's now gone to India, but, so I'm not sure what's what's left, but that's the general trend. And that's why industry has gone down uh, very significantly. If it wasn't for industry, uh, energy um, use would have increased it quite significantly. The one that worries me most on this uh, graph is transport. Because as you can see, uh, transport 
uh, is rising quite rapidly, the most rapid rise of any of the sectors there, and then that's basically from private transport, uh, the sort of uh, mode of transport that I come to the university in the morning, I have to confess, um, and it's predicted to, to increase as we go forward. Now, some of my uh, colleagues would say that there are developments in, in transport technology that will mean that we will improve the efficiency of transport and we'll also reduce the emissions from transport. And that will certainly happen to some extent, but I fear that it won't happen as quickly as we need to, but that's a, a challenge for us all. Okay, so let me uh, just summarize what the, the challenges are as far as the energy sector is concerned. I've talked about global warming. Uh, a few years ago, the Royal Commission on Environmental Pollution undertook a report of the energy sector, and it argued that we should aim to reduce air carbon dioxide emissions by 60% by the middle of this century, 2050. If we were to do that, then the energy sector and the transport sector that we have by 2050 will be very different from the energy sector and the transport sector that we have today. That's quite a dramatic change. Uh, but we have to, as well as moving along this path to a low-carbon economy, we also have to bear in mind issues about fuel poverty, that we have to take um, responsibility for those members of the community that are disadvantaged. Also, if we hike the price of energy too quickly, then we disadvantage it ourselves in terms of the competitive position of our neighbors in Europe and elsewhere. I've said already that fossil fuel uh, supplies are, are decreasing. Uh, if we use more natural gas uh, for power generation, which is one of the trends that we, we can see, that's going to make the situation even worse. I've said that North Sea oil and gas supplies are depleting, um, so that the situation will get difficult as we move into the next few decades. Uh, nuclear power is on the decline because we're decommissioning old power stations. If we do nothing by 2020 or thereabouts, we will be left from a situation where at the moment 20% of our electricity comes from nuclear power to a situation where only 3% of our electricity will come from nuclear power, and that will be from one power station, and that will be the Sizewell B power station uh, in Suffolk. And uh, as we move into the future, general issues of energy security, what I talked about um, being reliant on the Soviet Union, well, Russia, sorry, uh, will get worse. So what do, what do we do? How do we address this? Well, the House of Commons Environmental Audit Committee came up with this idea that we should adopt what they called the energy hierarchy. That is to say that if you want to improve the situation, what you should do first is to uh, improve end-use energy efficiency. For you and me, that means uh, insulating our houses and so on. Uh, once you've done that to uh, uh, as maximum degree as you can, you then use uh, renewable energy sources for both heat and power. Uh, after that, you use uh, combined heat and power. At the moment, or, or certainly uh, in the 80s, uh, we had an electricity system where the government put a requirement on electricity generators to produce electricity as efficiently as possible. They weren't interested in heat. And, uh, but nowadays, the government is encouraging people to, to use good quality heat from combined heat and power stations with, uh, with adjacent uh, um, uses. So, for example, if you're near a, uh, a new construction uh, site, uh, uh, new buildings, new community, you could use the um, heat for um, district heating. Alternatively, you might be near a, a big uh, chemical plant, and again, you could use the heat there. But it's not as easy as, as it sounds, actually. Um, once you've done that, you want to shift from uh, 
particularly from coal to low carbon fossil fuels, so it's a switch from coal to natural gas if you can, and with what's left you want to capture that carbon and perhaps pump it down into disused oil wells in the North Sea, or perhaps take it out of the, the gas stream by a chemical process and store it as a solid material. That may only be a temporary uh, solution. The geologists tell us that you can put carbon dioxide gas down into uh, wells in the North Sea, and they'll stay there for, for hundreds of years, but um, it's an unproven technology, so I wouldn't put all my money on that. Um, and finally... Um, you might want to invest in new nuclear power stations. And uh, there are a new generation of reactors which the industry claims are inherently safe, um, but they would uh, need operation approvals and take something like 15 years to plan, construct, and commission. So if the problem, for example, is meeting air Kyoto targets for CO2 emissions, which come into being around about 2010, nuclear power is not going to help us at all in that respect. It may help us with things like uh, energy independence after that, but not by 2010. Okay, I'm going to skip through some of these. Um, the, the next two slides just show a series of measures that you could take to improve the energy efficiency in those four sectors that I uh, talked about, plus uh, electricity generation. So there are various forms of more efficient power plant that we could use uh, in the electricity generating sector. Let me concentrate a bit more on buildings first and, and then on, on transport. So in domestic, commercial, institutional buildings, we can improve the efficiency very significantly. We are way behind our Scandinavian neighbours, and that's not just because they generally have colder winters than us. There's much we could do in terms of improving our insulation standards. We could use modern boilers, condensing boilers, for example, uh, we could use uh, heating controls in air homes. Most of us, I guess, do, so that the heating only comes on when we need it and not when we're not there. And finally, you can use high-efficiency and long-life uh, lighting systems and generally more efficient uh, appliances in the home. Things like uh, energy labeling will encourage us to do that in the future. Again, I think I'll skip over the industry. Uh, we have quite a lot of research going on here in trying to improve energy efficiency in buildings. But let me uh, look at transport. I hesitate a bit because Professor Hawley knows more about this than, than I do. Um, uh, but we can improve, as I indicated before, uh, the energy efficiency of internal combustion engines. We might, in the future, perhaps quite a long future, move to uh, novel powertrains, electric vehicles, for example. It's <laughs> Obviously, the problem with electric vehicles is it doesn't get away from the the problem of greenhouse gases um, because you have to produce the electricity from somewhere. And if you're producing it from a coal-fired power station, you haven't really got rid of the problem. So it improves the situation in, inside cities, but it doesn't really improve the overall situation. Equally with hybrid vehicles, a combination of conventional powertrains and uh, electric motors. And uh, in the somewhat distant future, we might go to uh, hydrogen and fuel cells. Some would argue that you should burn the hydrogen in a conventional combustion engine rather than using it in connection with fuel cells. And finally, there are a whole range of strategies which my wife would be delighted to see that I've put up there, things like um, uh, walking, cycling, and public transport, all of which she said I, I ought to do more of. Um, but uh, that's the sort of thing we should do. Okay, um, renewable energy sources. That was the next thing on that energy hierarchy that I, I showed you. These are the sorts of technologies that are available to us uh, now. Uh, wind power, uh, as I'll s 
show you in a minute. There's a lot of controversy in the UK about the use of onshore wind, but there are major schemes now to produce offshore wind turbines. Uh, we are also ideally um, situated to take account of, of wave power. Um, a Scottish wave device is going to be piloted off the coast of Portugal, not off the coast of the UK, off the coast of Portugal. Um, there are scope for small-scale hydro, including places like the, the River Froome near, near here. Uh, there's a lot of uh, interest at the present time about um, the possibility of building a barrage across the Severn Estuary. That will have uh, major problems in terms of the uh, environment of the Severn Estuary, and it will cost a lot of money. Payback period uh, will be very long indeed, perhaps uh, uh, 20 to 40 years, something of that, that area. And it will be very difficult to get private companies to invest in um, that sort of device. But it's uh, a number of politicians and others are getting interested. Um, I mentioned Jonathan Porritt and the Sustainable Development Commission. The Sustainable Development Commission came out with a report about three weeks or so ago, which said that we should go ahead with the seven barrage, providing that we provide um, habitats for wildlife that are currently in the Severn Estuary in alternative places. That will put a significant increase in cost on. There are a whole raft of uh, technologies that basically come from solar energy. Active thermal systems are those where you have a panel on the roof. I'll show you an example of that in a minute. Passive systems are when you have a conservatory or an atrium in an office building. Photovoltaic cells, which a number of our colleagues in, in chemistry are, are very interested in looking at the next generation. These are, are cells that convert... Uh, light to electricity that are on, perhaps embedded on your roof. I should say, um, and I'll perhaps reiterate this in a minute, the current um, payback period for photovoltaic cells, if you're thinking of invested, is something like 60 years, even including the uh, a, a government grant. So if you're doing it for, for environmental reasons, please go ahead. But if you're doing it because you think you're going to save money, um, think twice. Uh, there are a, a lot of interest these days uh, in bioenergy of various sorts. And uh, there's also uh, a lot of scope for uh, using energy that comes from waste, particularly from methane from landfill, for example. But also a lot of controversy about whether you should define that as a renewable energy source. Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth both claim that that's not a renewable energy source. What we should really do is to reduce uh, waste arisings um, first uh, and not worry about uh, using it for producing energy. Now, I said there was a lot of controversy about wind power. This uh, graph shows the amount of uh, onshore uh, wind power installed in the UK and compares it with the number of applications for wind farms that have been rejected at planning applications. And this is because there, are, there is a lot of opposition in the countryside to building wind farms on sensitive sites, including um, some distinguished members of the um, population. Prince Charles has said that he's, he won't have uh, wind farms anywhere on the Duchy of Cornwall estate uh, under any price. So we have some significant opposition to onshore wind farms. And that, it is for that reason that we're likely to move to offshore wind as being uh, the favorite uh, option. Just a few slides that uh, my colleague... Uh, uh, Steve Allen stole from the internet for me a, a while ago. 
this is a, a thermal uh, uh, solar system. What you have here is a panel which collects water, heats, heats, uh, collects solar, sorry, heats the water as you're going through the, the system. That's probably viable now. Uh, some of the other technologies, I said that uh, solar photovoltaic cells, here's a, an array on, on somebody's roof. This is the technology that has a payback period of something like 60 years. So here I've just tried to categorize which of those technologies are near market, which would produce heat or electricity at a price that's near to the market conditions at the moment, and those that are rather further away. And there are some that I haven't mentioned on here, like photovoltaic cells, which are almost uh, off the scale, if you like. So things like landfill, gas, onshore wind, uh, energy from waste plants, you can produce um, energy from them at about the same price as you could use conventional uh, energy sources. In the medium term, we hope that uh, offshore wind, energy crops and biomass, uh, and wave power might become economically uh, viable in the UK context. Now, as well as um, having large systems, large wind farms, for example, we're moving to a situation where we might decentralize our energy system. This is part of this idea that we, we will have to move from a conventional uh, system to one that's quite different from what we have at the moment. And so we might, instead of having centralized power stations, we might actually uh, develop a whole array of smaller uh, decentralized power plants. These might be combined heat and power plants. They might be uh, wind farms. Um, they might be bioenergy uh, bio plants, but they also might be plants at a domestic scale. Th these are plants that you would put in your home and replace your conventional boiler. So uh, Im 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 embedded solar PV is one of those, very expensive at the moment. Uh, Small-scale wind generators is another technology. We've recently undertaken a study of small-scale wind, and uh, it would appear to be have... Um, a useful output if you're in a rural setting, uh, not very useful output if you're in an urban setting. So David Cameron says he's got one of these on his uh, roof, I think. Uh, I suspect it's not making an awful lot of useful energy for him. Um, and you might have one of these combined heat and power plants on a domestic scale that you actually uh, fit in your homes. Likewise with a technology that's been around for many years but's never really been implemented, that is heat pumps. So, in the UK, we tended to have an electricity system that was dominated by uh, central power stations. What we might now have is uh, a number of other smaller grids, if you like, uh, of which you attach things like wind farms. You might have uh, solar energy on your roof, photovoltaic cells. You might have domestic CHP plant, all feeding, feeding into the grid and they might feed in both ways. So at times when you can't produce enough electricity to meet your own needs, you, you take electricity to the grid. When you're producing more than your own needs, you feed it back into the grid, and they pay you for the privilege. And these are the sorts of technologies here. Uh, we have a, a micro uh, wind turbine on the top of somebody's roof. Again, this is the sort of, unless it's in a rural application, which that I guess might be, uh, they don't uh, appear to, to give quite such good output as we might hope. Uh, this is one of those uh, micro uh, CHP plants. So here you have perhaps a, a fuel cell plant. It, it could be an internal combustion engine, but I suspect this one's probably a fuel cell. It doesn't look that much um, greater 
than um, a conventional uh, washing machine or something of that type. So you can envisage practically uh, input, uh, including one of these in, in your home. Uh, alternatively, you might go for heat pumps. This is an air source heat pump on the outside of somebody's uh, house. Um, is also interested in what's called ground source heat pumps, but you need to lay a, a, a pipe network in your garden, um, and they're perhaps uh, better suited to rural applications than urban applications. And so we come to the, the last of those uh, list of technologies that we wanted to look at, that's nuclear power. Um, it's an important uh, near-zero carbon source and potentially available on a very large scale. Um, there was some concern that uh, we'd lose our expertise in nuclear power because we haven't built one since the early 1990s. But actually, we could get that technology internationally. Until recently, British Nuclear Fuels, a government-owned company, owned Westinghouse in the United States, which designs the uh, most favored option of pressurized water reactor. So we don't have to worry too much about not having the expertise. But the capital costs of nuclear power are very high. And they've not generally been offset by low running costs, particularly when you take into account what are sometimes referred to as the back-end costs. These are things like, what do we do about the, the waste and the decommissioning of these plants when they come to the end of their life? If you take those costs into account, then the costs uh, of nuclear uh, look uh, more prohibitive. And, of course, there's widespread concern about the, the handling of radioactive materials and the methods of waste disposal. Uh, the government had an inquiry which reported last year under Professor Gordon McCarran, and uh, they recommended that we should develop uh, a long-term deep underground uh, waste uh, repository, but it could take 20 years before we get that up and running. In, in, in the interim period, we have uh, all the nuclear waste we produce, both from the weapons program and the civil program, is kept in temporary store uh, above ground in places like Sellafield in Cumbria. Okay, I want to finish off uh, my talk by talking about this idea of the uh, environmental carbon footprint. As I said at the beginning, it is really a, a metaphor for treading softly on the earth. This is a, a reproduction of a, a figure showing a footprint in sand. A couple of years ago, I undertook a, a study uh, which was a little controversial uh, which used this idea of uh, the environmental footprints to see how environmental footprints changed between countries that were in uh, industrialized, the developed world, and those that are in developing countries. Um, basically, what you do is you take all the resources used and, and the waste produced from human activity, and you c convert them to a common basis, and that's the, an area of land. That's what we call the ecological or environmental footprint, and I use those two terms interchangeably. Now, the reason this is important from a talk about energy is because fossil fuel consumption typically accounts for something between a third and 60% of the environmental footprint. A third if you're in developing countries, 60% if you're in um, an industrialized company, uh, country. And uh, what we do is to say, okay, there are a number of activities for which we can uh, represent uh, uses of energy and materials by land types. So uh, we all have to live in houses, so a certain proportion of land would have to notionally be uh, used for in our homes. You need uh, land for producing energy. 
Obviously, we need to feed it ourselves, so we need some bioproductive land and bioproductive sea. And, of course, we need to leave some... Uh, this is all that the land that we need for human species. We'd better leave a little bit left for the wildlife. So we've got a bit at the bottom here. And there's a lot of controversy about how much um, land hum humans should leave for other species on this planet. Some people say it's around about 12%. Other people say that it would be wise to leave something like 50% of the land for other species. Okay, so what I did was to uh, try and see how these environmental footprints vary in different sorts of societies. Um, we find that uh, these footprints vary depending on the uh, st stage of economic development and the geographic characteristics of different sorts of countries. And I took a, a range of different data sources from uh, the World Wildlife Fund and other international statistics. And the result, which is shown on, on the next figure, uh, is important because it shows us which of these countries um, of the world are relatively frugal in terms of their use of, of resources and which of these countries are um, profligate in their use. And some of the results are a little surprising. Now, this is... Uh, the environmental footprint of, of a whole range of countries um, against their uh, gross national income, their economic well-being, if you like, on the x-axis, and the total environmental footprint on the y-axis. And at the top there, you see the bad guys, if you like, the United States of America. It consumes uh, the most uh, resources, has the most environmental effect, according to this representation. But look who's coming next. The next country is China, and the one after that is India. And uh, USA only has 6% of the world population, whereas China has about 22%, and India about 16%. So it's not because they're using large amounts of resources individually, but they have such enormous populations. And uh, when we're moving forward into the uh, next stage of the Kyoto Protocol, the climate protocol, if we can't get countries like India and China involved, we're not going to crack that particular problem. I should uh, perhaps give a, uh, just say that I have a bit of a bias. Um, in my younger days, I, I worked in Uganda, so I have some concern about uh, the situation in less developed countries. Now, I'm not going to explain to you how I got this graph, but I ma manipulated the data, if you like. That's one way of looking at it. Um, and I found that uh, you could correlate data by that uh, line that goes through the middle of the data. And it basically says that uh, the environmental footprint of a country per capita depends on its uh, economic wealth, gross national income per capita, and to a small extent on its population density. So that's all you really need to know about that. And all those countries that uh, are on the bottom right-hand side of that graph, so this side, are countries who are relatively frugal in terms of their use of resources and their environmental impact. Those countries that are on the left-hand side, the top left, if you like, are countries that are, are relatively profligate in terms of their use of resources. And let's see where the USA is now. The USA falls exactly on that line. So it is not using any more resources than you would expect for a country of its size and its population. But the United Kingdom is using more than its share. So what I argue when I'm talking to people about this is that before we complain about the United States, we ought to do something about putting our own house in order. 
There are other countries, Australia, uh, Peru, etc., who are uh, very frugal. There are some countries uh, that are more profligate. Uh, Czech Republic, obviously, an ex-Soviet satellite, which had very heavy industry. That's why it uses a large amount of energy. Okay, I thought I would finish by just talking about uh, some work we did on the environmental footprint of Bath. Uh, and what you find is if you compare the environmental footprint of a, of a city, um, you find that it requires resources something like 20 times its land area if you happen to live in Bath, 125 times its land area if you happen to live in Greater London, 16 times if you happen to be in Santiago de Chile, and 200 times if you happen to live in Vancouver. And uh, therefore, <coughs> this notion that you sometimes see in, in the academic literature of sustainable cities is really a nonsense because no city is really sustainable. They are all dependent on human material and communication networks with the, their surrounding area, which in the literature we call their hinterlands or their bioregions. And if we want to show that graphically, we get a, a figure that looks like this. Here we've got the dif different geographic scale. We've got Bath on the left there. We've got the Southwest, UK, Europe, the world. And uh, the top figure shows an estimate of the environmental footprint. And I've been quite honest here. I put some error bars. So that shows, gives you an indication of the accuracy. And, and, the, and the net result is that these, calculating these environmental footprints is not that accurate. And at the bottom here, you've got the available space. And uh, if you uh, took the environmental footprint of Bath and uh, divided it by its uh, land area, you'd find that the overshoot was 20 times its uh, land area. So it requires resources equivalent to 20 times its land area. One of the interesting things is what happens here, what happens at the level of the world. Because we find there that the environmental footprint is actually greater than the available space. And you might say, well, how can that possibly be? How can we be living in a world where its environmental footprint is greater than, than the available land area? Well, the reason is that we, we use uh, for our energy system fossil fuels. And fossil fuels were uh, laid down over geological timescales. And if you like, we're, we're living on a, uh, a bank account which, which was laid down in the past. At some time in the future, they are going to have to come back into line. What are the implications for, for a city like Bath? Well, this is a, a general representation of a city. And you can think of a city as being um, a community that takes in resources from the left-hand side and pumps out wastes of various sorts and emissions uh, on the right-hand side. And what the lesson of this environmental footprint is that we need to, to change this way of working. We need to, to change to what's... Uh, Herbert Gerardet is called uh, circular metabolism. So we reduce the inputs by using uh, uh, low-carbon uh, renewable technologies, things of that type. Uh, we recycle much more in the city itself, and then we produce much less waste on the output side. That is the, uh, that is the way that we, a city like Bath, and actually Bath is pretty good in terms of its, its uh, handling of waste, but it's, of course it's not very good in terms of its energy efficiency because there are uh, limits to what we can do with, with Georgian houses and the like. Now, I'm not, uh, you won't be able to read this very clearly, so I'm not going to uh, attempt to, to go through it or want you to read it. But you can go back to that original slide where I cut the foot footprint up into different so sorts and see typically what contributions they make. 
And uh, what we find is that food accounts for something like 20% of air footprint, uh, direct energy about 20%, uh, materials and waste about uh, 40% or thereabouts. And you could develop a whole range of possible strategies of the way in which you could reduce that. So in terms of energy, you want to introduce those energy efficiency measures that I talked about and invest in renewable energy where that's cost effective and so on. So let me uh, summarize. What I like to say about uh, moving towards a, uh, a sustainable energy system is that there's no real en uh, easy option. All the options that we face, uh, however important they are to do them, all have uh, a downside. Um, the lesson of what we've been talking about is that uh, in order to make our energy system more sustainable, we need to uh, conserve uh, depleting fossil fuels. We need to reduce the amount of greenhouse gases we emit and the way to do that is, again, through this energy hierarchy. Energy efficiency is a, a low-energy and low-carbon strategy. Generally speaking, that's the option uh, where you get benefits uh, in all directions. You reduce money and you save the planet. Uh, renewable energy options, again, are at a near-zero energy source. They are diffuse. They are often intermittent. Wind only uh, produces electricity from wind farms when the wind is blowing, not when it's not blowing. So there are problems associated with uh, uh, renewable energy sources. I said that there was some opposition to energy sources in the countryside. Carbon and capture and storage, which I briefly mentioned, um, is a low-carbon strategy, but it's an infant technology. We don't have in the UK a plant operating on this technology. Um, the government is, has just announced that it wants a competition to build one, but we don't have one at the moment. And the final option, nuclear power, uh, we've got declining output over the next uh, few decades because of decommissioning. Uh, generally speaking, up to, to this point in time, nuclear power stations have been uncompetitive in the uh, liberalized energy market that we now have. And, of course, we have problems of uh, long-term waste storage. Okay, this is just another way of uh, representing the, the energy hierarchy. I think I'll skip that. And uh, let me just say that... Uh, the sustainable development which we talked about must be really be viewed on a global scale, not just on, on a, a UK-wide scale. Uh, the, the task facing the 80% of the world's population that live in developing countries is even more daunting than the situation that we apply here. And one of the ways in which we can uh, help developing countries to mutual benefit is that we can uh, provide them with best practice, sometimes referred to as leapfrog technologies, so the European Union, for example, has entered into an agreement with the Chinese to provide them with the, the best possible coal technology for their new generation of power stations. And that's in our interest, because if the Chinese uh, emit large amounts of um, CO2 from their relatively dirty uh, sources of coal, that will affect our environment as well as their environment. So uh, I just want to leave you with this thought, really. Um, I had the good fortune a few years ago to have a consultancy assignment in Sri Lanka. And uh, at the weekend, I went to a, a uh, rainforest reserve. And as I walked into the rainforest reserve, somebody had written on a plaque uh, this uh, saying, don't take anything but photographs, don't leave anything but footprints. And I guess that's the metaphor for my talk today. Uh, and I said uh, that there were a number of people who uh, helped in the research that we're doing here. Uh, the individuals are, are named there, and uh, there are a number of sources of um, funding that come in to support our research. Okay, I think we're running just about uh, on time. Thank you for your attention.